Welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I'm your host, Dave, and I am pretty much recovered from Dragon Con. My my throat's or my voice is still a little scratchy, but uh I I had an excellent weekend, but it went by way too fast, and uh I I think I say this every year. But I think next year I'm going to have to cut back a little bit because I feel like I really just didn't get to enjoy uh, Dragon Con as much as I would have liked to. And and unfortunately, a lot of that was due to running between the Hilton and the Westin uh, several times over the weekend. I will be posting a full recap episode of some kind. I know for the last couple of years, uh, me and Mike Gordon have been getting together and just sort of doing our personal recap of Dragon Con, and I'd like to do that again. But this episode had to go up today because the very last panel that I was on for the horror track was uh, about it about the book, about the 1990 movie, about chapter one, and about the upcoming movie, or rather, the movie that came out today. So I thought it would be really cool to release this episode to coincide with the release of chapter two. Like, it would be weird to put it out a few months from now, uh, or I don't know, I just wanted to jump on this when it was a good opportunity to to do a little uh, media synergy, if you will. This panel was the perfect way to end the weekend. Uh, I've been on quite a few panels with Mary Mancusi and Clay Gilbert, and uh, Cat Scully was going to be there, but she was stuck in the dealer room. Her husband, Michael, showed up, and he was very cool, enjoyed talking to him. And then Katie Elliott, who I know I have worked with before, but we couldn't figure out uh, what it was on. I'm going to have to go back and look through my panel history to figure that one out. But she moderated the panel, and we all just had an absolute blast. Uh, had a full house. It was a great, great time. It was the perfect way, like I said, to end uh, my panels. Let's see. I'm trying to think how much detail to go into. I will say this. Uh, like I said, I uh, there I had just a few too many things on my plate, which is weird to say because we didn't even do a game show this year. The The screening of Troublemaker was was much, much easier to plan for. Uh, I mean, not even a comparison. But I, there was just a lot of running around. And I, I even irresponsibly missed my very first panel that I was supposed to moderate. Uh, more on that later. I, I I do feel bad about it, but also... Uh, it was pretty reasonable the, the way I handled not being there. And it's interesting because I thoroughly enjoyed every single panel I was on. It was mainly just the the running to and to and fro, if you will, that that got to me a little bit this year. It would be nice. If I, I even thought about maybe staying in the Westin next year, uh, but I just I love my Hilton so much, so I don't I don't think I'll make that change at any point. But it was just it, it was great. It was great. It was a great time. I got to hang out with really cool people all weekend long. I got to talk on panels with cool people. I got to do my first panel for the urban horror or I'm sorry urban fantasy track, uh, which was great. But I don't know if it's going to be uh, producible, listenable. How about that? Because there was a band playing right outside the track room. And I think there's not going to be any way to scrub that. Well, I know there's not any way to scrub that. But if it's loud enough in my recording, 
I'm just not going to be able to use it, and it's a shame because the Angel panel was great. Uh, like I said, all the panels I was on were, were great, great fun. Uh, nobody pissed me off this year, which is nice. Uh, oh, oops, I've never mentioned that that's happened before. I love everyone, and I've never been on a panel with an annoying blowhard who doesn't know when to shut their mouth and let other people talk. Uh, I'm, and I'm actually, I'm always very concerned people are going to think that about me. Uh, because I, you know, I do, I project and I get my thoughts across, but I always try, I, I try to never be the first person to speak. Uh, when, when a question comes up or when something is said, I always give it a beat to give somebody else the opportunity to speak up. I, I never dive into something unless I get like really, really excited or I feel like it, it's a question that's sort of specifically suited to me. Like if we, it didn't happen, but if we were on the angel panel and somebody said something about the toys, well, I would feel obligated at that point to speak up because that's kind of one of my areas of expertise. Uh, but I, I try to be very conscious of how long I speak. I try to be very concise and not ramble. Uh, and, and I try to give clear cues when someone else should cut in and I try to converse. I don't know. I, I think that I'm pretty good at all of that. Uh, and if you've ever been on a panel with me and you don't feel that way, shoot me a DM and let me know. Uh, and, and we'll, we can discuss, but, uh, you know, not everybody is that way. Some people like to get on the mic and hog it and not converse and not allow other people's opinions and i think that's makes for a terrible panelist and i think people that do that should be banned from uh, dragon con for life i'm just kidding that's severe but they shouldn't be on panels uh but anyway uh just a, a great great time and this panel is fantastic you're going to enjoy it if you listen to it uh, before you see it chapter two you will get a little bit of insight and you'll Maybe it'll enrich your viewing experience a little bit, and uh, you know, if you even if you wait and watch it after you've seen it, chapter two, I think it'll still uh, be a fun listen, and you'll know more than we did going into the panel, which may make some of the things we predict or speculate on about this sequel hilarious in hindsight. Because who knows? I won't know until tomorrow night. I'm I'm recording this uh, Wednesday night because. I mentioned a couple weeks ago my work schedule just happened to give me more days off than I normally get. So I got home from Dragon Con Monday morning at 8 a.m. That's right. After the puppet party, uh, after the the puppet slam and later on into the evening, uh, I got back to my room, I loaded the car, and I went home because by that time I was completely sober and... Uh, ready to go so i got home at uh, like seven forty-five, had some breakfast with mrs troublemaker and went to sleep for eight hours and it was eight hours of the best sleep i've ever had in my life it was great uh and now i've had tuesday today and uh, i'm off tomorrow as well and then i don't go back to work until friday night although that kind of stinks because i'm working friday saturday and sunday night so it's like i last weekend was dragon con this weekend is literally the opposite of Dragon Con. I'm away from home all weekend doing the opposite of having fun. So, you know, but but I'm fortunate to have had as many days off afterwards to recover as I have had. And I promise you guys, I am going to be productive this weekend and have some great stuff for NeedlessThingsPodcast.com for you next week. Uh, I'm not going to say yet what because I don't know what I'm going to feel like writing outside of our monthly previews rundown. But uh, I did pick up previews today from my local comic book shop. Uh, so I will be doing my previews rundown this weekend. So that will be up next Wednesday. Uh, Monday, I will be posting the interview with Ryan Magnon from uh, Panda Money Toys that was supposed to go up today. And due to one thing and another, just didn't. So that'll be up Monday, Tuesday. We'll do Home Again, which I might have already written. I, I know I did at least one week in advance. I might have this one done as well. Maybe not, but it'll be up regardless. And uh, so there you go. Uh, plenty of good stuff happening. 
Uh, for you guys, I'm excited about how Dragon Con went down. I will be talking to Mike Gordon soon. I will be talking to Mr. Bo Brown soon. We have two new podcasts that we've got to get in the can, uh, one of which will be a thorough review of Dark Crystal Age of Resistance because, holy moly, it's amazing. You guys, if you're not watching it, watch 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 it now. Oh my gosh, it's blowing my mind. Uh, I'm only on the fourth episode, or I just finished the fourth episode, and it's gorgeous. Uh, every few minutes, I get a little teary about how beautiful it is and how I truly do feel, as Bo Brown and I stated uh, before Dragon Con, that it is the culmination of everything Jim Henson ever dreamed of. It's delivering on the promise of the movie. Um, it's just wonderful. But that's that's enough intro for now. I know you guys want to hear about Pennywise the Dancing Clown. You want to hear about it. And you want to hear from the lovely panelists that I got to spend my last panel of Dragon Con with. So here it is. Uh, it. Pennywise. Oh, man, is it Returns or Lives? I don't have the graphic in front of me, and I haven't named my podcast notes yet. So it. The Return of the Living Pennywise. Enjoy. fiction, horror, and fantasy for Darkman Press. Um, my 11th novel, Pearl, it's a horror fantasy fusion, just came out a month ago, and uh, I've been coming to Dragon Con since 89. I was a part of the horror track staff for 10 years, and glad to be here again. I'm Dave West, owner and operator of NeedlessThingsPodcast.com, and please check out the new documentary that was made about me that world premiered last night at DragonCon, uh, Troublemaker. Uh, just look up Troublemaker, Google it, you'll find it, and uh, I love it. Hi, I'm Mary Mancusi. Um, I am an author, but I write for Disney and I write kids' books, so that has nothing to do with being here. Um, I'm just a horror fangirl and have always been, you know, in love with the genre, so I always come here and uh, just geek out with all y'all. All right, so I guess one of my main questions to start off with to get this ball rolling is why do y'all think that Pennywise has made such a lasting impression on fans? Well, clowns. clowns. (laughs) Yeah, clowns and Stephen King. Um, Those are two things I would say. I think that um, King has an extraordinary talent as an author in terms of crystallizing character and the psychology of fear and in rooting all of the fear in the original novel in the lives of children and then using Pennywise as sort of an archetype of childhood fear. It's just, it's the best example of the scary clown that I think's ever been done. And so I think that's the reason. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the central point, I think, is that it confirms our suspicion that there's something wrong with clowns. <laughs> like, it's not just like, oh, this is a psycho clown. There's something so much darker and deeper underneath Pennywise that uh, it's he, he's iconic, or it's iconic, rather. Uh, and, and it very much so, you know, through the, whether it's the words of Stephen King or the imagery that we've seen in the adaptations, uh, very easy to latch on to, very easy to pinpoint as a, as a focal point of fear. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts, and like many small towns, um, 
might think there was a clown myth, and but I thought it was real at the time when I was a kid, and you know, it's like, oh, there's a killer clown that's like, you know, abducting children in their vans, and you know, all that. I'm sure you've heard this urban legend. But I was in the cemetery. We lived next to a cemetery. This probably explains a lot uh, growing up. And I was at the very end, like, you know, probably half a mile from my house. And uh, my brother and I saw this van pull up. And I swear to God, it's not a fake memory. It really happened. There was a clown. And he stepped out of that van. He was carrying a balloon. Oh, God. And me and my brother looked at each other, and we ran like hell. And then I read it a few years later when I was a teenager. And I'm like, oh my God, this could have happened to me. Um, you know, Stephen King doing so many New England stories, uh, always his stories come home to me being from New England. It's just, it's, everything is so realistic. These towns, these people. And I think that's what keeps it alive so much. You know, as much as we love to say, oh, the clowns are so scary. It's the reality, you know, that he builds into his stories that really make it come home. It's not something like, a cabin in the woods that you'll never go experience. It's like in your town. It's happening right amongst you. That's the real fear. It's actually funny that you mentioned the small town clown urban myth because when I lived in South Georgia, there was a small town, Tifton, Georgia, that had that same damn myth. <laughs> and I, I could not find any newspaper clippings about it. Couldn't find anything about it. But all of my friends that lived there swore it was true. It was this crash of clown kidnappings in the 80s. Weirdest. Sorry, that, that was a random <laughs> tangent. No, that's <laughs> great, though, because I, I think uh, there's a certain element that, that sort of goes in hand with the satanic panic that was going on at the same well, time yeah. of those, yeah. uh, you know, back then, pre-internet days, things got latched onto like that and they got can everybody hear me all right without a mic yeah. okay um the you know parents society whatever latched onto stuff like that and, and it it was almost more ominous then because it was all spreading word of mouth and that's king uses that in in it in the same way is that the town of Derry knows there's something wrong with it and it's this undercurrent and i think the 80s in america there was you know, that was something that he tapped into in that book is the same kind of feeling. Very true, very true. Uh, do you think that one of the reasons maybe he picked the clown was because of sort of the stigma attached to carnies? Anything to do with that, maybe? I mean, I don't, you know, we have a stigma against clowns now, probably stemming from the 80s and all that, but <laughs> the, the, book takes place, we're not talking about the new movie, but the book takes place in the 50s, where clowns were actually kind of cool and fun and silly and la la la, like you go to the circus and there's clowns and they're funny, haha. I don't think they had that kind of clown thing in the 50s. So using something that's such a childhood delight, you know, when Georgie goes to the sewer and, you know, the drain, the drain and is like, oh, there's a clown, how cute, like how festive and fun. Like he doesn't have that instant feeling of dread that we all have because we have this preconceived notion of clowns. So this idea of something that was childhood innocent, but so, so evil under the surface. And that's a good point, actually. Um, you know, nowadays, when we watch the adaptations or read the book or whatever, the idea of Georgie going to this storm drain and not immediately screaming and running away from the clown <laughs> in the drain uh, is, is a little weird. And, and they have to do a really good job of presenting it for us as an audience to buy it. Uh, but in the time period of 1958, yeah. uh, you know, you had what Bozo was around, right? I mean, yeah. the, you had clowns as entertainers was still a concept. They were as, you know, it was like Pikachu walking around now. Like, it was the same kind of thing, which, by the way, uh, 30 years from now, let's go ahead and update it. But with Pikachu, it's got a thing. It's horrifying. When did the whole, when did the whole trend towards clowns being creepy start do y'all think it started with it because i've had to kind of try to wrap my brain around that in preparation for this i mean i watched bozo the clown in reruns on wgn when i was yeah. a kid in the yeah. late 70s and early 80s uh, and bozo wasn't creepy um yeah. And yet, well, he's not surprised. <laughs> 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 but I, I don't, I don't think 
now I think we go instinctively to creepy when we when we say the word clown. Yeah. Back then we went instinctively to fun and maybe a little odd. I don't know where that tip over started to happen. Unless unless it was with King's book. Uh, I don't know. I don't know of another case. It might have possibly been like John Wayne Gacy. I mean, you know, once people fun. realized that he was like a children's entertainer and was like dressing up as a clown and they found all the dead bodies of the boys, I mean, I could imagine that would kind of skew your view of that innocence that you're talking about. Yeah, it's very interesting because, it, you know, that is, that's a stigma now. You see a clown, and, and I think that, that skin crawling is the first feeling we get, but it wasn't always that way, and that's very possible that that's where, as a society, that started to spread out from there. And that's one of my, I'm sure we'll get into it, problems with the new re- remake of the movie is that they decided to set it in Stranger Things land, or 80s, um, <laughs> and it takes away, I think, a little bit about the mo- about the book that I loved so much because I love this retrospective of what it was like in the 50s of kids growing up with monster movies, and, you know, that you can go to the double feature at the cinema. Yeah. It's a different experience growing up in the 80s and experiencing what happened. And I know that in some ways it works because it is so generational, as in, like, it does repeat over and over, and maybe this is, like, an idea of, like, this is if what would happen if the timeline hit at the 80s instead of the 50s, but... I just love the 50s stuff that he puts in his book, and I feel like that's missing in the new movie. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, In a way, I guess you could say that the 80s was sort of the last gasp of that 1950s innocence, so that there's a kind of innocence that's still there, uh, but it's an innocence that's fading away uh, as opposed to that 50s setting. I mean, when when you have, like in the original book, you have not only it taking the form of Pennywise, but it taking the form of Frankenstein's monster in The Mummy. Um, and that was one of my problems with the first adaptation, is that all we got was Pennywise. And it's still, I kind of wanted to see Frankenstein in The Mummy. Or, if you're going to set it in the 80s, I wanted to see Jason and Freddy Krueger. That would have been cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. But instead, we, we just get Pennywise. And I don't know, I think it kind of it kind of simplifies the the more universal threat that King has in the book. But, oh well, it's still creepy, it still works. It's a semantic point. I mean. That's interesting you brought that up, because I, I really hadn't even, I mean, I was aware of the time frame change, but it didn't bother me a bit, but you're absolutely right, in that we did lose a, a bit of the essence of the story by moving it into, into the 80s. But I think... For modern audiences, it was probably the right decision. Yeah, and we we it, it enables it for the conclusion to be present day, whereas what was happening when they were kids, like uh, one of the common problems now with horror is cell phones kind of ruin horror movies. <laughs> so Jordy would so make a TikTok video of like. <laughs> so so for to establish that childlike fear that they had, it, I, I think that was kind of the last decade where you could really make that happen. And welcome to our new panelists. Would you like to give a brief introduction? Sorry. Sure thing. Hey. I think there's also, um, you're right, they, there is a, a, t- a danger in uh, updating it and losing, possibly losing some of the specifics of the horror from King's book. But I think one of the other things that's going on in it is one of the um, sources of fear is not only just the, the obvious, but also the idea of disconnection. The idea of um, these children not being able to have, uh, not being able to communicate some of the things that are causing them to be afraid in their own lives. Abusive, abusive parents, feeling of outsiderness, uh, outside uh, or marginalization, and those are things that still translate, and um, and those are things that maybe even are magnified in our world now versus what they were in the 80s. I don't know. Some things change, some things stay the same. We've got a new panelist. Quick <laughs> <Hi, my laughs> introduction. Um, hi, my name is Michael Scully. Um, I've had a sub out for Kat Scully because uh, she's double booked. So, 
<clears throat> so I got stuck on the wrong side of a uh, Star Wars parade. So <laughs> <laughs> such a Dragon Con thing, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I was double booked for that too. I was supposed to be. Oh. oh. Well, well, we're sorry. Welcome. No, no. I'm have, definitely happy to be here. Welcome to the horror. Track. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, I I can definitely agree with losing that '50s vibe. Um. But I do think that for younger generations, seeing the new rendition of it, having it be modern day might make it a little bit more relatable. I hope that's why they did it. I hope it wasn't a Stranger Things cash grab because they actually put one of the kids in Stranger Things in the movie, which I felt was really distracting. Um, It was very hard for me. I don't know if, I'm curious with the audience who likes that they split it up too because one of the things I loved about the book was that, you know, it was like the adults looking back and kind of weaving it in. How many people like that they split it up between kids and adults? And how many people wish they had kind of done the more like, the, like the book is? Okay, so we got a mixed bag. Interesting. Okay. I, I feel like if they had tried to do it as one feature, we wouldn't have gotten something as interesting as what they've done. We wouldn't have gotten as full of overall future because I, I, I believe the director, I believe Andy Muschietti has already said that there's going to be a cut that's the full feature, that's both movies yeah. put together. And I I want, you know, what, five, five hours, I guess, at this point. I want that good five-hour full story. Uh, whatever his vision is, I want to see it. And I don't think we would have gotten the whole thing if they had to cram it all into one feature. Yeah, yeah I think for me it's, uh, it depends on the context of how I'm seeing it. Like if I'm seeing it in the theater, I probably want to do it in two separate goes like they have it. If I'm watching it at home, I'd pick the, uh, the five-hour cut every time. we got a pause button. Yeah. <laughs> right. Netflix limited series. Right, right. Because right. five hours is a little much to ask someone to sit in a theater seat. But at home, on your couch or wherever, in your bed, wherever you watch your horror movies, <laughs> five hours is nothing. Yeah. Now, let me tell you what isn't nothing. I tried to uh, listen to the entire It on audio this summer. I'm down to six hours. It was 48 hours, I think. And oh my I was listening at uh, like 1.5 speed at the end just to like try to race through. But it is a long book, and he meanders a lot more than I remember from when I was 15 or when I originally read it. I did the same thing. I listened to it on audiobook at work, and it, yes, <laughs> it was very long. It was very, very meandering. And it's shocking some of the things that I forgot. Like, the bullies are horrible people. Yeah. And when you think of the movies, you're like, oh, they're like bullies. Oh, my God, yes. they kill animals, like, by torture. They killed their baby. One of them killed their baby brother um, by strangulation. Yeah, I mean, that, that was, the death of the bullies is so much more horrific than you see in the films. Yes, which leads me to, I guess, the next main big question is, what are we hoping to see from the book in this new ending chapter? And I'm staying away from the scene. You all know what scene, and I'm staying away from that. We know we're not going to see that. Well, we won't see that because that was a kid scene. Exactly. That's just, no. Not okay with me. But other than that, what... What are some of y'all hoping to see with this ending chapter? Like your favorite scenes? Well, from what I've heard, Richie is, is steals the show, um, the actor who uh, plays him. So I'm very excited because I didn't really love the Richie that they picked as the kid Richie. I didn't feel like he was out, like just you know, out, out there enough as much as he was. And and uh, Sean Green played um, Richie in the '80s version or '90s version or whatever, and he was kind of great. What's that? Seth Green. Seth Green, thank you. <laughs> um, and he was fantastic. Um, so I'm very excited to see this adult Richie that everyone's talking about. Yeah, I think the for the most part the casting is amazing for for the adult versions. Uh, and one thing I'm really looking forward to seeing how they handle, and I feel like the movie kind of has to open with it, is Stanley. Uh, yeah. Because it's, I mean, that's it's brutal. And we're going to have to have some context for it, though, because we have not yet seen this actor portraying Stanley Uris, so as an audience, we won't have that instant connection. So I'm very curious to see 
how they're going to give that scene the impact it has to have with a fresh new actor that we don't know already. Unless the film opens with a flashback showing Stan as refreshing our memory of Stan as a kid, right. and then bringing it forward into present day and what happens with him in the, in the present frame. And I think that's what they'll probably have to do. I mean, we know they've shot stuff with the kids for this one. It's not just right. adults. We're They're bringing the kids back. So there right. will be some fleshing out of the story we've already seen, and, and there will be opportunity to build that yeah. bond again. And I think doing that, too, uh, would be a good way to, to sort of restate what the, the strength of the first film, and that was just the, char- the character elements of it. I was really frustrated with the reviews that the first movie got. This isn't a real horror movie because there's so much emphasis on character, and you know that's just not true. I mean, it was had. There's tremendous horror to be had out of good characters. Yeah, I think uh, like everybody else said, really, I would watch this cast read the phone book. Uh, but uh, the thing I am more excited about, honestly, is to see more of Pennywise because uh, I, I feel like. I read the book first, and then I saw the 90s series, and I do feel like the ending of the 90s series was kind of a letdown just due to technical limitations, and I really want to see how they handle it. Yeah. I hope they give more of a role to Mike. I feel like in the book, he was, you know, um, the, I mean, they didn't do anything with him. They, they, ben took over as, like, the historian role, and I was really, really mad about that. And then Bev, who was, like, the linchpin and killing it the first time, she, they made her get kidnapped. So I hope both of them have more of a role and more agency in this film. I think it's safe to say, Mike, just from the trailers we've seen, I think Mike is is going to be a much bigger part of of this one than he was in the first one. I know it's hard because it's a shorter movie and Mike comes in much later in the Losers Club, like he's the last member. Still, I just, I don't feel like they gave him enough to do. No, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Um, It's funny that you mentioned wanting to see more Pennywise because I read a little factoid that um, Skarsgård actually was terrified by this role and it gave him nightmares. He had nightmares about Pennywise for weeks after they wrapped the first (laughs) So, But I do look forward to that. Um, Who here hasn't read the book and doesn't know how it ends? Oh dear. <laughs> well, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some spoilers. Just a heads up. Um, is anybody looking forward to seeing how they do the transformation from Pennywise the Clown to the terror? Like the unholy horror spider creature. Of, of course. And I mean, oh, we yeah. saw. We saw it. We got a taste of it in the first one. There's yeah. the scene at the end of the, the final battle where those arms exactly. come out, and, and it, I mean it, that was everything that I wanted it to be. Like modern technology, yeah. say what you will about CGI, but <laughs> when used right, when used properly, something like that, they did what they could in the 1990 movie with you know puppetry and animatronics and whatever. And it was, I mean, it was cool. It looked cool. I'd buy a toy of it, <laughs> but uh, that's a low bar. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I think less is more in this kind of thing. So I don't want to see them like hacking at a puppet spider. Um, you know, I want to see the deadlights. I want to have like limited vision as it's all happening. It's chaotic and crazy, and like you know, you don't exactly know what's going on. Um, as in any monster movie, any horror, you know, if you see too much, it's less scary. Yeah. No, I definitely. I, one of my favorite scenes listening to the book. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the only one. <laughs> no, you're not the only one. Um, the part that kept my attention the most was when um, Bill was floating in and out of consciousness with the deadlights, and he was in um, that crazy world with the turtle. The turtle will save us. Like, that that was the part that kept my attention the most. So I'm looking forward to maybe at least touching on that. Turtle. I'm hoping. The turtle is such an iconic Stephen King, you know, thing that goes through every, you know, bit of his work. And so it would be a shame to not have that somehow 
Brea, I'm hoping that they at least, you know, a little tidbit in there. Well, they, I mean, they've already established the presence because of the turtle Lego oh, that was right. in the first one. So oh, that's that that's yeah, already, sure. it's when, um, when Bill sees Georgie running through the house right before the scene in the basement. Yes. Uh, he's he's gone into Georgie's room and he picks up. It's a turtle made of Lego, oh. and then he drops it and it breaks. Which is very interesting visual imagery. If yeah. you're a King fan, you know that that turtle breaking is bad news. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, they, they've again Andy Musietti, the guy. And I apologize. I'm sure I'm mangling his last name, <laughs> but he knows the work. And I, he's he's getting good stuff in there. I, I think you'll be happy. I'm curious um, how much how you guys like Skarsgård as uh, Pennywise. You know, a lot of people before the movie came out were like, "Oh no, like Tim Curry's it. Like no one can be Tim Curry. This is just going to be a disaster." But I had seen him uh, in Hemlock Grove, and he plays a very different character. But I really loved him as an actor, anyway. And so I'm curious um, what you guys thought of his actual performance so far. Better. I was about to ask yeah. you that too. So much better. Yeah. This is nostalgic. Tim Curry or Bill Skarsgård as far as personally? Who do you like? Like, on a personal level, do you prefer Tim Curry's like Tim Curry's version? You know, so I'm going to do my own thing, and it's so different. And I think that's valid. Like, I do think both interpretations are awesome, and but I'm really thankful they're different. I think uh, Tim Curry is really effective for being on a TV movie. Yeah. Yes. Than yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Those yeah. ones really effective just for, you know, you can always... Yeah, you have to give it the, scary as hell for the proper content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've always you're good. I love Bill's performance, but I think he's a little too scary. He's a clown. He's supposed yes. to lure children in. He's not going to lure children in if he looks like your worst nightmare of a clown. <laughs> Clowns are my worst nightmare. That's a fair about, point, yeah, though. Yeah, and we talked about this earlier about the 50s perspective versus the 80s perspective, and maybe there's something there of like now we think clowns are creepy in the 80s versus 50s. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's even back in the 80s, which we still had a little touch of the clown fear, but, you know, to kids, clowns have a very different meaning, usually. Usually. Um, they have a very different meaning than adults. I've found that adults tend to be more hesitant around clowns than children. Children still see them as funny and wacky. Adults are just like, oh no, get that thing away from me. <laughs> so, I mean, I think part of it might also be exposure. I grew up in a very sheltered household, wasn't allowed to watch horror movies or whatnot, and like my wife, who this was her upbringing. So, I discovered horror when I was already a teenager, and I think the new one is phenomenal and amazing, and I hope I make it out of here alive when I admit that when I see the Tim Curry one, I'm like, well, what is this? You know, it's, it's not scary at all. It's definitely a product of, I think, when you were exposed to it. My wife would not even let me out of the room. <laughs> it's, it's campy, but it's, it's classic Tim Curry camp, which is, you know, half of his roles. It's nostalgia, like someone else said earlier. It's nostalgia. Also, sometimes, like you said, you can't out, out, out Tim Curry, Tim Curry. Some of those okay. line deliveries, you know, kiss me, fat boy, and the whole thing. <laughs> you can't get that with uh, the new way in certain respects. You do get certain awesome things, but even you did the right. thing where I'm like, that, for me, that's not scary. That's one of the things I was like, that's, you're doing a little too much, you know. But other times, uh, it, like I said, you can just be able to intercept incept the mind, I don't know, the mood, atmosphere or something. I'm, a, I'm more of a Michael Myers fan, so I know exactly where it can kind of, uh, you know, lead up to like the actual, you know, stab versus in all that other kind of crazy movie dervish kind of stuff type of movements. I think what we've hit on though is that there are two different interpretations of Pennywise. We have Tim Curry's is what you were saying that he needs to be appealing in some way to lure these lure his victims. Um and, and I actually say this because does anybody in here have the Blu-ray? Did you get the Blu-ray? Did you watch the special features? If you haven't, you should. 
Uh, Bill Skarsgård talks about in an interview that his Pennywise, um, that he's he's playing Pennywise not as a clown but as this demonic entity that isn't getting it quite right. <laughs> that that his Pennywise isn't necessarily intended to be a, a comforting, amusing clown. It's this otherworldly entity's idea of a clown. So it's not quite right. And it, in that same interview, he, he talks about how the not getting it quite right isn't calculated on Pennywise's part. That There's something broken in Pennywise, the entity himself. He's a broken creature himself. And so that complicates it because it's not like he's this Machiavellian string-pulling uh, terror of children. He's a little screwed up himself. And he's not just uh, he's not he's not just pulling the strings all uh, in some preconceived way. Um, he's kind of playing he's kind of playing a game too and it doesn't all come out exactly right every time. Well, it's um, the entity is not a, a, a demonic super or like a cackling super villain. Right, right. It's a it's an exile from another dimension. Like right. it's this thing that doesn't really want to be here. It's not like there's a master plan. Right, right. That's it's the, just hungry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seemed to me like it was kind of in the um, the newer version is more um, of an entity that's kind of operating on instinct by imitating like kind of like a minor bird. Uh, and I, I thought, like, it really did a great job exemplifying, like, the broken thought process whenever, like, you start staring at something and his eye starts moving away. Yeah. So, yes. yes. Which is Skarsgård just, that's not effects. That's something Skarsgård can just do. Oh, wow. Wait, no way? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's all yeah. him. That's fantastic. Yeah. They, they discovered that during the casting. Uh, and actually, you bring up a really good point of trying to imitate something. It's, it's almost like John Carpenter's The Thing. Where it takes that shape, but it's not right. Yep. less personality behind it than you know the original where it was like Tim Curry being <laughs> Tim Curry and you yeah. can't separate it's like uh, Bill Murray nowadays of you can't really pull the two apart but Skarsgård made it almost like Uncanny Valley it was this thing moving but it wasn't quite human yeah and I mean as much as I love Skarsgård most people didn't know who he was before it yeah. um, and so that's kind of you know having him not be a character actor probably helps with the scariness and to find out he's such a cutie pie, <laughs> I, it was unbelievable. Like the first, because all I ever saw of him was the Pennywise makeup, and then once I saw him for the first he's time, a I was like, guard. "What do you expect? Wait, wait, <laughs> handsome fellow they have playing this monster." You need to watch the first season of Hemlock Grove. Then I, I do. I need to get on that. Well, I loved him in. Uh, yeah. uh, oh shoot! What was the net? Um, the Hulu show that Stephen King. Castle Rock. Castle Rock. Castle Rock. Castle Rock. Completely different performance, but fantastic. Yes, go ahead. Um, the uh, personality of the difference between the clowns, like we were saying, is 30 years difference. If you remember, the clown always comes back 30 years. Mm -hmm. So that's a good job in between also explaining 
how you can see the difference in the time. Okay, but, yeah. But everybody's talking about, not everybody's seeing Pennywise, only the kids are being haunted by him. True. Because the adults will see there's something wrong. They can feel that, but they don't see what it is. It's just like the lady on the porch when you have turned Georgie talking to somebody in the sewer. She's not looking to see what's he looking at. What's he talking to? Yeah, she just, she just turns away like she has a cold chill. After he's snatched and he's screaming bloody murder, then she walks back out. And it just opens a blind. They so, talk a lot about that in the book, and it's because children believe they have this belief, you know, that adults lose as they get older, and that's why it feeds on the children, is because they still will believe in him, and he can use that and their fear from their belief to that's what he eats. And that is one element that I would have liked more of in the first movie is the discussion. And it would I think it would have been hard to do, but the idea that the parents know how wrong Derry is, because they have the two moments, they have the one you were talking about right after Georgie is taken and the lady looks out and sees the giant pool of blood in the street and is like, oh well, I guess I better go feed the cat. <laughs> and then uh, later on when uh, they're carving initials into Ben's stomach and the car drives by and they, the two creepy adults are just like, well, we'll keep going. And the balloon pops up, which signifies to me uh, that it's Pennywise's I guess influence, whatever influence he has over the town, but I would like to see a little more of that sort of adults ignoring the horrible things. Yeah, that that divide between what what the kids are going through versus what little the adults actually know right, is right. going on. Well, even, I mean, every adult that, you know, all the main characters leave Derry and they don't remember anything about what happened yeah. until, you know, two... Uh, where they start to remember, and it takes them a really long time when they get back to try to, like, dredge those memories back up. Indeed. Yes. So I kind of want to piggyback off of that. Like, I was fairly disappointed at the lack of magic in the movies. Like, the book is very, I mean, there's there's definitely a, a magic. There's a magic and there's a power that the children have. And the movie doesn't, I, mean, I was also super mad about Mike, how they totally took all of Mike's good, awesome things away and gave them with, like, crappy parents like I was I yes. was infuriated when I saw the movie but like the ma- the lack of magic the book is it's critical to the story the power and the magic of the children the magic of their numbers like the, yeah. the magic of the turtle like all of that was just kind of blown away for for super scares I mean I don't know how to like like no. yeah. super scary clown and not any magic and I'm just I mean, I think that's really critical to the story. I'm the adult version. Well, Eddie using his... Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Inhaler. Yeah. Inhaler, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. Well, and the, the book that... I believe it was Stanley had the book... Yeah, the book with the birds. Yeah. And he, how he used that in his separate fight against... Um, Every, yeah. It, Every one of them had their own talisman that was something personal to them that they could use to fight this evil. Yeah, I thought it was powerful. At all. No. I know. No, I, I can I can see where they didn't even let Beverly have her slingshot in the movie. Silver. They just let her yeah. be a victim. True. True. Uh, yes, Spider Man, you've had your hand up for a while. So, uh, moving a little bit off of that, but do you hope or think that in the next one they're going to try to do? Because in the book, you know, they have a lot of going through building each character's like history between them being a kid and being an adult, you know, kind of how they grow. Do you think or hope that they show kind of that, you know, at least a recap version of that for each other? Well, not recap, but, you know. I feel like they're going to have to have some of it, you know, because it defines who they are, like Beverly marrying a guy just like her father, you know, and then uh, Bill's wolf actress wife, and the false Calvary in Stephen King book. Um, and, you know, all those things. I mean, those are important to who they are. The fact that none of them have been able to have children, I think that's something, you know, that was important. It was never really spelled out in the book of why, but obviously this, like, idea of this, their childhood has never quite, you know, ended because they've never been able to get rid of it. But, like, you know, teen years moving into, you know, specifically I remember a lot of uh, Bill's thing, you know, going through high school, college, and being a writer, like, do you think that's going to be something they're going to try to keep and push in there? Uh, or do you think it's 
is likely that it's going to be time after. Do we know how long the movie is? It's 2.45, yeah. I think. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe that's, I feel like yeah. they could do some stuff. I, I don't know, but I, that stuff, I don't know how essential that will be to the story they're telling with this adaptation. So I don't know. I'd, I'd be a little surprised if we see any iterations of the, of the char- uh, characters other than the kids and the, the grown-ups that we know have been cast. Um, uh, do you look right. Can you speak up just Sorry. a little bit? Or stand up. There still is some magic. Well, it ends up being Bill with Georgie uh, at the end because you know Georgie comes out from around the the big drain and is you know trying to fool Bill, of course, and that's Bill hardcore just. Which is fantastic because the the creature's reaction to that that that, that transformation scene is tremendous. Yes. Like we're already scared of Pennywise, and now we have the little dead zombie kid creeping in and of himself with giant clown arms and feet and everything popping out of his body. Like it, I I loved how that was shot and ex- yeah. executed. Definitely. Yes. Uh, so this is a this is a movie that I Yes. Yeah, the crazy lady who's saying, "Go play with the play in the sewers with your friends," and then later on, it's telling uh, Henry Bowers to, to kill, yeah, kill him, kill him. Um, and yeah, there is you see his direct influence, but a little bit more of the the sort of undercurrent of of, of adult neglect. Stanley's uh, painting, the paint, painting flute lady that's yes. like the second scariest thing in the whole movie. Um, which, by the way, the scariest thing in the whole movie. To me, the scariest scene in the whole movie is when Ben's in the library researching and the librarian's standing behind him just like that smile, just staring at him. Because you don't even necessarily notice that your first run through. And then you see it and you I mean, to me, that's a jump scare, even yeah. though nothing is technically yeah. happening. It's yeah. horrifying. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Um, you've raised your hands a couple times. <laughs> um, I came in late, so I'm sorry if this was discussed already, and if it was, just for me. But um, how, how canon do you think Richie and Eddie is going to be in the new movie? If at all. Um, well, Richie has to be less of a racist. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know, like, what... Stephen King was doing, like trying to do in the book, is that they all had their thing that made them the loser, and so they made fun of it, and they didn't mind that they were making fun of it. But good lord, going back to reading the book and listening to it on audio now, I'm like, this is terrible. Like, this would not play now, and they can't do that anymore. So I think, you know, Richie with his voices, like he needs to 
you know, <laughs> have a little more PC, uh, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain it, but for sure. I, I was honestly surprised to even hear he did, uh, at one point, he did a, like sort of a Mexican accent. Uh, and I was a little surprised even that guy because I look my brain is different than it was 30 years ago uh, and you know that's some of the success of the societal changes that we're going through right now is that stuff that I would have thought nothing of when I was 13 years old you know now I'm like oh that doesn't look real good and, and but that's good that we're all thinking that way now that we're aware of these things and I, obviously the movie's aware of it too so they I mean they didn't put the, the scene. And also, right. which, you know, is, again, a cultural shift that that wouldn't be acceptable well, today. I mean, yeah, thank goodness for that, um, for sure. But, yeah, no, I, as I was listening to the book, I noticed that, too. I was like, oh, my God, some of this stuff is just not okay. I hope nobody hears me listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually have that thought for a second. I was like, let me make sure this is paused before I go to the bathroom. This is not okay. That's why I stopped listening to it on my commute because I drive with my windows down. <laughs> but doesn't it make for like interesting art though? I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's like heinous in some areas and stuff like that. But we are talking about this thing thirty something years later. Oh sure, sure. Things where you know we're making more content now, but if we're going to go to PC. Will that affect our you know uh, reaches of depth or, of, of creativity? I mean, of course we can still be creative, but and, and still not hurt each other's feelings. But in terms of just the full-on extent, the nth degree, so to speak. Can we go there? My only concern is when we're casting a false light on the past. Yeah. I don't think we ever want to erase the fact that society was that way. Right. I think it's a mistake if you're going to make something set in the 50s like that. I think the characters need to behave accurately for the time period because when we forget the lessons of the past, that's when we screw up the future. Right. But going forward, for you know, when we're making my current modern entertainment... Uh, I do think we need to be conscientious about how we portray characters and, and relations and everything else. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, I was I was I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and uh, is it Pet Cemetery just set like right down the road from the town anyway? So could it just be that whole general area that that like? Well, Maine is evil. <laughs> don't don't go to Maine. <laughs> Apparently, that's what Stephen King is saying. You know, New England is dangerous. Yes. yes, all of New England, all of Maine, just no. I can back that up. There's, there's a hell mouth there somewhere. Oh, there is. No, I, I'm from Boston. On my way down here, my car exploded. So, yes. Oh, okay, well then. I grew up in Massachusetts, so I, you know, somehow survived. <laughs> Creepy clowns in the cemetery and all. But, I mean, you know, at the same time, you also have Centralia in uh, Pennsylvania that was the inspiration for. Silent Hill. Yeah. So yeah, all of that area. Nope. Just stay with but I do agree. I mean, the whole Stephen one of Stephen King's points in, in the book, and I don't know if it always comes across in the movies, is that dairy is the problem. Uh, it, it, you know, it something is wrong in dairy, and that is literally like the thrust of it. And that's why it happens every thirty years, and it keeps coming back. It has to do. There's something rotten in the town. Very much so. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Well, just to answer that question. Uh, the last, the, the most recent Pet Cemetery to come out had the explicit road sign. So very 50 miles. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was like they just said, look, dude. Yeah. Little shout out. Just a little shout out to fellow evil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, regards to dairy being a problem, I think there's a common trope of focus on area, something big in the area of evil, if you watch the book and read, 11, 22, 63, you compare Dallas to the other day, the same sort of tone, people ignoring it, like the FBI ignoring Oswald, and so he does a really good job of just turning where we're at, and it's really wrong to play this kind of thing, while I think that there is an area of evil, it's curious, it's really interesting to think about what it is that makes us I think it's that that weird pervasiveness of you know you're you're in a small town where everybody knows everybody everybody's up in everybody's business and then all of a sudden everything is just 
going to hell, for lack of a better term, I guess. <laughs> It's a common theme in a lot of people's work. I mean, like, if you look at David Lynch, um, like Blue Velvet and then Twin Peaks, and this idea of this idyllic suburban or rural town, but there's something rotten underneath the surface. And I think it's a good trope for horror and, and a lot of things. Well, and it's an interesting idea because uh, it's almost a metaphor for just life. Because yeah. we, we have to get up and go to work. We have to do the things that we have to do. And there's rotten stuff that you just have to live with and get on with your life. And I think that's maybe also where this is coming from a little bit is just, you, you know, there's stuff that's wrong, but man, you got to live. You can't fix everything. For sure. For sure. Um, gentlemen with the tattoo. Oh. <laughs> um, so to answer your earlier question, uh, back in 1990, my cousin wanted to scare me and so showed me it. And all she did was did start my obsession with my lifelong obsession with evil clowns. So thank you, William, on that one. Um, and my hypothetical question, if reading door that no way in hell is the, is the correct answer, um, what would it take to get a, everything from the book into a, into a TV adaptation? It would never happen. Like, just make the entire book an actual book. Could never do it. I mean, you know, there, there, are some things, there are some things that I don't think would adapt very well nowadays to, to television, for sure. Or even to movies. They're just some no. Gotcha. Now, are you, ta- are, are you talking about a more full adaptation that represents yeah, the book well, better, not necessarily a slavish devotion oh, yeah, no, to every element? It would element. not be a, a, an in-theater release. Okay. It's a small-part series on Netflix or something like that. Right, right. Absolutely. Why not? I yeah. think that could be awesome. I mean, they're doing it with The Stand, right? And yeah. So. Oh, uh, that, works. <laughs> <laughs> that has to work. Hopefully, we'll be at a panel talking how awesome that is in a few right. years. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll see, but probably not. Oh. <laughs> so, so I thought the Tim Curry version. I mean, even though it was like it didn't have a lot of you know technology to make it look scary, I thought it followed the book very closely, like as closely as an adaptation. So, um, it is my favorite book, like in the world. I probably read it like twenty-five plus times. Like I thought that it followed it very closely. Like, I was very impressed. I mean, obviously, it's hokey, and there's not, like, you just can't capture that level of horror in a, you know, 90s remake or whatnot. And then the other thing, so the, the thing that's rotten in Derry is the malevolent alien that lives under Derry, right? I mean, that's, but I think it seeps into King's other works as well. Like, you know, I mean, he, he connects all of his works with little shout-outs here and there, but the, the answer to what's rotten in Derry it's a malevolent thing. Like, once everything goes down, I mean, I think it's like the sun comes up, it's a new day, you know, Derry's been, like, uh, exercised, it's, and now it's reborn. It's cool again. Yep. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, with the, like, <coughs> utter failure that was the Dark Tower movie, do you guys think... The what now? Sorry, I that was Dark remember, Tower uh, fan fiction? That wasn't yeah, yeah. Dark Tower. I don't remember the Dark Tower movie that you're speaking of. Do you think that the success of this movie could, you know, they could start building these elements into, you know, between the King Cinematic Universe? Yeah. 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 I mean, talk about something that needs a series. It can't be captured in a movie. Uh, that would be, yeah, that would be amazing. And I think they could do it. I mean, if you start with, you know, like the gunslinger and tell the story as it is, like, it's a great story. It is and a it's great story. a long story, so you just can't do it in a movie. They could actually put the seed in it, too, because it, it is part of the gunslinger series. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay, one last question. Yes. Okay, so maybe another way to look at it. Maybe it's not it making Derry evil. Maybe Derry is evil, therefore it drives it. Could be for the commentary on that was my interpretation actually, because I I felt it was a commentary on the tendency towards small towns to kind of ignore the problems and sort of if we pretend it is not happening, maybe it'll go away. So I grew up in a very very small town, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, there was there was some pretty heinous stuff that we found out happened, and everyone just it and I only found out years later. So I, I think I thought it was a commentary on that tendency. Does that make just my reading of it? I, I see it as it is the source of the evil, but due to the nature of small towns, it's able to thrive in dairy. 
Uh, like I, I, I see it as sort of an evil symbiotic thing, like where neither side, like parasite. Actually, it's not a symbiotic relationship. It's a parasitic relationship where it is able to feed off of the fear in this town, off of the the lack of uh, caring of what's going on, of what's wrong. <laughs> Oh, and also, everybody remember to go into the DragonCon app and uh, give this the old five-star rating. Yeah, if you want to do a part two next year, go rate the five stars so they'll let us do part two. Yes, so we can come back next year. If that seemed a little abrupt and weird at the end, it's because after my last comment, there was some costume business, or not costume, contest business, and a couple of other things that were really great for the live audience, but would not have made for an interesting five minutes or so for you guys listening at home. And then the panel sort of petered out after that. Uh, so that's that's how... I just had to sort of fade it out and keep going. But I, I love that group. Uh, it was a great panel. Obviously, I'm a huge, huge fan of it. And uh, I, I would... Hopefully, we'll be able to do it next year. My wish would be after we all... Everybody who was on that panel sees Chapter 2, we could maybe even get together on Skype and do a review. But... I'm also okay with just waiting and doing it next year at Dragon Con. So, uh, if you were at the panel, please remember to go into the app and rate it. Uh, if you only listen to the panel via this podcast, uh, you can rate it honestly, I guess, just as far as, this was a great conversation, would love to see more next year. Uh, really enjoyed the jet engine that they were all sitting underneath. And, and as always, I apologize to you guys uh, that I couldn't do more for the sound quality, but that's just that's what it is. It's a live panel. You, you take what you get, and you be happy with anything that can be posted. <laughs> so uh, there you go. Enjoy. Next week. Next Wait, what is next week? 6th, 13th? I think next week is what was supposed to be the August Needless Commentary. Heavy Metal with our special guests, Evil Jim and uh, Dan Kelly. It's awesome. You're going to like it. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things Podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vicks employee. Love you. Mean it. Uh-huh.